This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. As we get closer to more and more people having their second dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, what's our world going to look like? But in the meantime, we have an opportunity to hear from Dr. Donald Vinn of McGill University as we talk about what we can do once there are more people with two doses and talk about vaccine hesitancy and a number of other things. Dr. Vin, how are things? Things are going uh, very uh, cautiously optimistic here. I like it when scientists use the words cautiously and optimistic in a sentence. Thank you for doing that. What has you feeling cautiously optimistic? Well, you know, I'll be, I'll be very, very frank, right? The, here, the rates of community transmission are very low, despite the fact that there are still droves of people getting tested. So that means that people are following public health recommendations. They're getting themselves, themselves tested, but the, the, the positivity rate is low. And of course, hospitalizations are low. Deaths are obviously very low. And vaccinations are high. And that's what, that's what you want. Low cases, high vaccinations. And here we are. We've got it. It is summertime. We saw a decent summer last year. But with vaccinations, do you expect that this summer doesn't necessarily have to take us to a fourth wave? Or is there still a risk that we might have to deal with that? There will always be a risk of a fourth wave. However, the determinant of that fourth wave is actually not going to be what variant emerges. It's going to be what is the public doing in terms of protecting themselves. If we can get fully vaccinated, so that's two doses of vaccines in at least 75% of people, I'd say even higher than that, but at least 75% of people, we have a very good chance of having a very nice summer and fall. But we have to make sure that it's fully vaccinated. It's not this half job where you do only one dose. It's not the vaccine hesitancy where, well, maybe I'll get the vaccine uh, next week or next month. No, fully vaccinated as soon as possible for yourself, for your family, and for the rest of society. And I think the next few months will be very encouraging if we can do that. No, we'll talk about what that could mean in just a moment. We're talking with Dr. Donald Vinn, and Dr. Vinn is in the Department of Medical Microbiology and the Department of Human Genetics at McGill University Health Center Research Institute. So two doses of vaccine. We know we've, we've done even maybe a, a little celebrating, at least tuning of, of the horn in Canada that we got to the front of the pack when it comes to first vaccinations. Now we're trying to bridge the gap and and get ourselves with both doses. Dr. Vin, what will both doses allow someone to do? Do we even have a clear-cut playbook on that yet? Well, let's first focus on the individual, right? So as you mentioned, Canada's doing very well. We're almost at 65% of the entire Canadian population having received at least one dose. That's fantastic. That's two thirds of our population. And we're about 14% having fully vaccinated. So about one in seven. So, So we're making some progress, but we're not there yet. But what happens when you're fully vaccinated? Well, first of all, the person who gets fully vaccinated, they should know that they are getting the full protection of the vaccines and that protects them from getting severe disease. That means that, that if they ever do get COVID, it protects them from getting hospitalized and protects them out of, from dying. So that's always a good thing. But it also protects them or decreases the risk of transmitting to others by about 50 to 70%. So not only are you protecting yourself, you're protecting others. 
If we can do that on a mass scale, on a populational level, then you can start to imagine what kind of social activities will be allowed. Obviously, some of the social activities are under provincial uh, jurisdiction, right? Because our healthcare system is a confederacy of sorts. But at the federal level, one of the things you can imagine is, you know, uh, some easing of travel restrictions, which is, of course, what we would all like to eventually go back to as well. So you can imagine that at the regional or provincial or federal level, a fully vaccinated person not only not only has benefit medically for themselves, but at societally, they'll be able to return to to as near normal as social activities as we can. Obviously, you know, with some prudence, we'll see how the, that book plays out. How important is it for us to have a book of rules? Do you think that's something that would help in terms of trying to say, okay, if you have had both doses of a vaccine, these are the things you can do. If not, these are the things you can't, or is that just going to create more confusion? Well, you know, when you're coming up with a plan like that tries to address the question you have, you have to look at it at least from two different perspectives, right? From a medical perspective, you are absolutely right. If you are fully vaccinated, uh, you know, you have, you're, you're protected, you're, you're maximally protected, at least for the most part. And there's all these other caveats that we just talked about. And academically, that is absolutely true. But then you also have to look at it from an operational perspective. Can we actually implement a plan that is so surgically accurate that you can tell or you can easily distinguish who's been fully vaccinated from those who haven't? And that's where it becomes very tricky, right? Because right now, as I mentioned before, about 14% of our population or one in seven are fully vaccinated. So how, how do you implement a, a policy where you have special rules for those who, for that one in seven who's fully vaccinated and you have a different set of rules for the six, six out of the seven that are remaining, how do we distinguish those on a casual basis? How does a, how does a police officer or a restaurant owner or the customs agent figure that out easily? You know, one could say, well, well, why don't we have vaccine passports? But the reality is that not everyone will, will be able to, to have that. I, I don't have a vaccine passport and I know I'm fully vaccinated, right? So there are a lot of caveats along the way. The alternative is to say, well, wait a minute, we keep track of how many, how much of the Canadian population is vaccinated. We're, we know we're at 14%. And we know that if we can get at least 75%, then we don't even need to be able to distinguish who's doing what. Because at least 75% means that three out of every four individuals is fully vaccinated. And then you can imagine that the policing or the, the surveillance of it, it becomes a lot, it almost becomes a moot. Right. Dr. Donaldvin joining us. Dr. Vin is in the Department of Medical Microbiology and the Department of Human Genetics and McGill University Health Center Research Institute. We will have people who do not want to get the vaccine. When you hear that as a scientist, what's your reaction? Well, I, I have to tell you, I'm also an infectious disease specialist, um, and I, I ha have actually staffed our, our COVID wards. And unfortunately, I've also had to declare deaths of people who have been on our COVID wards. And I'm pretty sure if we asked those people, if you, we could have given you something to prevent you from dying, would you have taken it? The answer would have undoubtedly been yes. We have also seen throughout the last century, the benefits of vaccines on humankind. And so what I don't understand is why there are people who don't wanna have the vaccine. I can understand there are people who are hesitant and you know it's normal to be hesitant. There's some questions that need to be answered and hopefully you can speak with somebody who's educated and give you those intelligent, thoughtful, uh, you know, neutral, but dataful answers, you know, full of data and, and hopefully address the, and ease the, the anxieties. But the people who are frankly against the vaccines, I, I have to say that those are the people who will be infected, uh, it, who will be the start 
of, of, of another wave. And the question is, if they're a sizable proportion of people, then they'll transmit to themselves. They risk transmitting to other people who may have been fully vaccinated but not responded, like, like people with cancers. And with enough transmission, they can actually be the source of new variants. So, so I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of an enigma for me as to why you wouldn't want to protect yourself or your loved ones, if not the rest of society, but just getting vaccinated. We do have all kinds of things that say, hey, you know, and you can find this stuff on YouTube and it, it gets a little gets a little overwhelming at times, but it does get shared and it's, you know, the vaccine will do this or the vaccine will do that or or this will happen or just wait until you see what happens after a certain period of time that people have had this vaccine is there a way to say, yeah, the, you know, that stuff's out there, but it doesn't mean it's true? Well, you know, unfortunately, these vaccine hesitant people have existed since the existence of vaccines, right? When the original uh, use of vaccines was, uh, you know, Louis Pasteur trying to come up with a vaccine to to pr protect people from rabies or other people from smallpox, there, there were doubters. Oh, well, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. You know, a few almost a century later nothing has happened nothing bad has happened only good things have happened you know we've been able to eradicate smallpox we were potentially on the verge of eradicating some eradicating some other infections Th that has not led to anything bad the, the fact that people can get polio vaccines and, pro and therefore avoid being paralyzed, that's not bad, right? So if you can avoid getting um, the complications of COVID, and, and for those of you who doubt that there's any complications of COVID, you know, there are, there are clear cases where people's hearts have failed and they have to be on machines. There are still people in the hospital who are still attached to machines because their heart hasn't recovered. Or there are people who've had clots that have caused them to have strokes or, or, or pulmonary embolism, blood clots in their lungs, and that's from the infection. That's from the infection. That's not from the vaccine. That's from the infection. Okay. If you saw those numbers and you saw those cases and you saw people in a vegetative state because they, they had one of these complications and, and it's, these people are not old, decrepit people. These are young people. These are vibrant people or they were vibrant people. You, you would not hesitate. I think the problem is that the people, the public is a bit sheltered from some of this and it's easy to be an anonymous, you know, armchair uh, critic when you don't actually set foot on the front lines and see what this is. But but we have, we've been on the front lines. So we're telling you what, what we're seeing and what's bad. And we're trying to help you understand that this is a lesson you don't need to learn the hard way. The way that the mRNA vaccine works, is that terribly different from other vaccines and, and the way that they are given? So that's a great question. The mRNA vaccines have actually been in development for about two decades. So yes, we've seen its rapid uh, emergency use uh, over the last year because of the, we obviously had a pandemic, but this is not science that came out of the blue. This is science that came out over at least two decades worth of work. And when you look at the vaccines, you know, the ones that we're using now, some of them are developed are, are delivered in a sort of a what we call a lipid nanoparticle, which is basically a, a fat droplet. Some are uh, through what we call an adenoviral vector, so a, a shell of, a, of, a, of another type of virus that's been essentially shelled out so that it doesn't cause any problems. And then there, there's, there's genetic material of the virus in there so that we can get an immune response. But at the end of the day, it's to elicit an immune response. We have all sorts of different vaccines, at least six different technologies of vaccines that have been used in humankind for the last century. And they all have different methods of delivery and exactly what is inside the vaccine in terms of the genetic material or the protein material. But at the end of the day, 
they all do the same thing, which is to stimulate the immune response. So it's like, how do you get to from point A to point B? You go by car or by boat or by pl plane or by bicycle. It doesn't matter as long as you get there. And so people need to understand that you need to look at the forest and separate it from the trees. We need to get to immunity. How you get there is, is you know, if it's that technology or this technology, is, is, is it not the point? Is, is just get to the full vaccination status, two doses, and then you're protected and your loved ones are protected. Dr. Vin, thank you again for your time. Thank you. From McGill University. So laying it out that he wishes people could see the front lines, that he has had to pronounce people dead. And if you could give somebody something that would keep that from happening, would they have taken it? And that's that's the position that you don't want anybody to ever have to be in. We live in what may one day be called the information age. We've had the Bronze Age, the Metal Age. By the way, thanks to Matt McNaughton, Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. See, I knew it wasn't Zeta. That's not where Z comes in. Omega. So we'll get to Omega variants one day. We'll get to Double Omega or Alpha Omega. I don't know which direction they'll go in. But the thing that we'll continue to try and do is give you information that comes from people who are doing a really good job of checking and offering up thorough information. And one of the groups that has taken that on their shoulders during this pandemic is Science Up First. And we're lucky enough to have with us right now the director of Science Up First, Magda Bina. Magna, thank you so much for being here. Hi there, Mike. Nice to be here. Let's talk about, first off, what Science Up First is attempting to do. Lay it on us. Sure. Um, so in a nutshell, Science Up First is a social media movement. Um, we are a national collective of independent scientists, researchers, healthcare experts, and science communicators. And we share the best available science in really creative and accessible ways to stop the spread of misinformation around COVID-19 and currently specifically COVID-19 vaccines. Um, we live on social media platforms. So we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Very shortly, we'll also be on TikTok. Um, we have a website where you can download all of our content. And I think one of the important things to know is that our content is in English and French. So we're being as accessible as we possibly can. So in looking at content, tell us where your content comes from. Oh, my goodness. Um, so there's lots of misinformation out there. We collect data, all sorts of data, and we're constantly analyzing data to, to project where the questions will be, what kind of misinformation we could be anticipating. Um, and we're also working with a collective of experts. Our coalition of experts really has their ear to the ground, both in the science, but also within the general public. 
Um, what are we experiencing as a population? What are the questions that we're having? What are the best ways that we can communicate the most effective science and the best science possible? Because the goal for us is to make science accessible for individuals so that people can then look to facts to make informed decisions. Because right now, there's just a lot of information out there. And it's pretty easy to grab a piece of information and say, well, then this is what it is. This this is exactly what it is. Without looking at where it comes from, it could be somebody who got their medical license from a surf shop and has decided to call themselves Dr. Whatever their name is and spew all kinds of stuff. So in a way, it almost sounds like you are you're going after an opponent that you can't necessarily see. Stuff could pop up from anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and I think what's been happening over these last months, this last year, over a year, um, information is coming out so incredibly quickly. And, you know, social media is amazing. It lets people share everything, but it also lets people share the wrong information. And sometimes this information isn't even intended to be misinformation, and sometimes it is. Um, the WHO has seen such a high incidence of anti-science misinformation that they, they've actually de- uh, dubbed this time the infodemic. So it's really important for organizations like ourselves that have that coalition of experts, those actual researchers, the PhDs in those labs, the family physicians, um, work with science communicators to create content that people can trust, but that they can also access really easily and that they can understand. And then they can point their communities, their networks, those individuals within their um, immediate circle of friends and family that have the questions and have the concerns. We are talking with Magda Baima, who is the director of Science Up First. Magda, let's look at an example then. Let's say that someone has circulated a video and, you know, take your pick as to what it could be targeting, but it's creating something that says, no, wait a minute, I have the real truth. And you come across that. How do you deal with something like that? Yeah, so we find this piece of misinformation. Um, We work really closely with an incredible group of experts. So this is our coalition of experts, the research scientists, um, to find the best piece of science to debunk the misinformation. Um, Then we work with our science communicators to take this science, which oftentimes is incredibly complex, and create it in a really effective, creative, accessible piece of content. Um, So then once we have this content that we've created that is backed by amazing science, incredible science, we release it on our social media channels. And in order to be able to reach as many Canadians and give as many Canadians access to credible information, we work with many like-minded partner organizations to amplify our messages through various different networks. Um, We also work with community organizations. 
And what we we work with these community organizations to understand um, particular hesitancies, particular needs within the community, so that we can create content that addresses those needs specifically. So, really, this is a network approach, and it's a wraparound approach to find the best science, create the best content, and then reach as many Canadians as possible. So it's not like you're jumping into the comment section or you're putting a comment on a particular piece of information that says, hey, just a second, this, would would that just be something that you know is out there, it's being circulated, and then you go to your channels to say, well, actually, here's here's the real information? Yeah, so we we look at a lot of different sources of data, um, and we also take feedback from our audience. We get a lot of DMs with questions, with comments, with areas of of concern, and and that's our hope is that when the Canadian public comes across a piece of information that just doesn't seem right or they they don't understand completely, that they come to organizations like Science Up First to see what the credible information is to to be able to take pieces of misinformation and come to channels like ours to find the the fact based piece so we're we're debunking and we're also hoping to create a trend within the Canadian public to look for the fact based information as opposed to taking um you know just those pieces off of TikTok or Instagram that you know, might or might not be true. Magda Bima joining us, Director of Science Up First. Magda, when you're putting together the list of things that you're going to look into, are there certain things that keep coming up? Would vaccines be top of the list, or, or would there be something else that actually trumps it? Yeah, so some of the very common subjects of misinformation that we've been working really hard on recently are... Um, Vaccines, so side effects, fertility, for instance, vaccine shedding, um, vaccine timelines, um, they're different across Canada. So there's a lot of confusion and some information um, that is needed for that. We're also seeing questions about the safety of vaccine ingredients. Um, what we're also doing, we so we address the current concerns and the misinformation, but we're also looking to the future to see what could be potential trends for misinformation. Um, and so right now we're in the trenches preparing for a really busy back to school season. Um, I know that we were anticipating a lot of questions and rightfully so. Um, it's an uncertain time. These are big steps that, that we're making. And so we are very much planning the content and and that we're creating to help answer questions um, for parents, for students, for teachers, for, administra- for administrators. Um, we want to help the Canadian public feel really safe going back to school in the fall or going back to work. If this is that, That's also another one of those areas that we're working towards. Absolutely. Well, we're going to see the call to go back to office spaces in the near future, and we'll see what that does bring. As a final point, 
where exactly do we find you? Your website is scienceupfirst.com, but you mentioned try the social media accounts and, and follow along there and take a look through that information. Where exactly would we find those? That's right. So Science Up First has both a French and an English channel. So our French channel could be found at La Science d'Abord, and our um, our English channels are at Science Up First, and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and very soon TikTok. Well, we'll look forward to you continuing to debunk the stuff that's out there that isn't heading in the right direction. We really appreciate the time today, Magda. Keep up the good fight. Thanks, Mike. That's Magda Bima, Director of Science Up First, because it is so easy to circulate information, and it is so easy for people to put information out there that is not necessarily accurate or completely inaccurate. On Tuesday, we were just talking with Leilani Farah, and she is featured again in Push the Documentary that looks at housing costs, rental and purchase costs around the world, and the rise that we have seen, and the challenges that that has brought, and how this has become an industry. Well, there is a fantastic article that has been written by Global News reporter Erica Alini at globalnews.ca, and it talks about this. It talks about a developer coming in and looking to invest in Canada's housing market. And we are lucky enough to have Erica with us right now. Erica, how are things? Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Let's kind of look at who this developer is and what you know about their plan. What can you tell us? Yep. So the uh, developer is called Core Developer Development Group. Uh, they're a condo developer based in um, Toronto. Uh, and what they've announced is they have a plan where they want to buy up to a billion worth of single-family homes with the plan to convert them into uh, rentals. And uh, they're hoping to have a sort of a total of, they're targeting 4,000 rental units. And they're starting in Ontario. They've already started buying in the GTA and uh, mid-sized towns in Ontario, including London. And then they're hoping to expand to Quebec, BC, and Atlantic Canada. Wow. Wouldn't we all, with the way that real estate is going, love to be able to say, yeah, I'll invest a billion dollars in homes. What could the attraction be to turning them into rental properties? So what uh, CORE is doing is it's sort of like something that's been done before, but with a new twist. Um, So the idea of um, corporate investors, large investors coming in and buying real estate is not new. It's been happening in Canada for a while, but it has been in the residential market. It has been focused on apartments. So what's new here is that they are focusing specifically on single family homes, which is something that has been done in the U.S., but my understanding is this is a bit of a first for us in Canada. And what they're thinking is they want to buy these homes and they 
generally want to uh, carve two rental units out of them. So those 4,000 units that I talked about are not necessarily 4,000 homes. So for each home, you'll probably get, you know, a main unit and then something like a, a basement apartment. And what they said is uh, that there is a lot of demand uh, for single-family homes from renters. There are a lot of people that uh, would like to live in a single-family home that home that can't can't afford to anymore because of the the huge price increase um, that we've seen uh, during the pandemic. Right. And so this would give them that opportunity, even though it sounds like it could still be a shared dwelling and it takes advantage of being able to take a home, purchase it, and then rent it out, not just to one family, but perhaps to two. And you say this has been going on in other countries and we've documented how it's been going on in other countries. And usually it raises the price of things. We're talking with Erica Alini and we're talking about Erica's article at globalnews.ca. What a developer's plan to buy 1 billion in homes could mean for Canada's housing market. Erica, who else have you heard from when putting together your reporting on this? And, And what have they said? So we've talked to a variety of experts, and I would say there are two main concerns about this uh, sort of new twist on this uh, uh, investment type of investment. And so one is, will this impact the supply of single-family homes that are available for ownership? Because we're already in a very tight market, and single-family homes are very coveted, and there, that's a segment of the market where the shortage is particularly acute. So will this take sort of homes out of the market? You know, no one can buy them anymore. They've been bought. They, you know, they've been turned into rentals. That's one concern. The other concern is, will we see uh, sort of above average rents in these uh, homes? And are we going to see sort of... Um, that if, if this scheme sort of becomes um, more popular, if other corporate, inv- you know, if, if this particular group is successful and so others imitate them, um, you know, we're going to have this rental in single family homes, but are we going to see rental, the, the rents uh, rise um, faster? And uh, it's interesting to see there are uh, different opinions, but there's a sort of a a, a widespread concern, I would say, uh, among a lot of the real estate experts that we've uh, spoken to. Yeah, because it brings in the big investor, and if they own a lot of units, they have an awful lot of control, and then we look at what else has happened around the world. Huh. Now, in terms of anything that can be done, did anyone offer up any suggestions? Or, like you say, this company has already started to make purchases. Is it kind of too late? I uh, So we haven't heard um, from, from regulators or, you know, any sort of concrete intention um, to, to step in. Uh, what we what you keep hearing over and over, and not just for these piece, but uh, from a real estate analysts, people who closely watch the real estate market, um, there seems to be a growing consensus across the political spectrum. Not everyone agrees, but I have been hearing from both sort of housing advocates who tend to be more on the left, and you know, and other experts who tend to be more conservative. 
Um, it's really striking how often I hear uh, really, you know, the, the government needs to step in and we need uh, the government to build, build, build and increase the supply of homes. Exactly. Well, Erica, thank you so much for your reporting on this, and thanks for talking to us about it, because it is an incredibly important topic. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. That is Erica Alini, Global News reporter, and I'll tweet out the link to the story. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 